Uh, I shared uh, Friday night that um, when we look at the Great Commission, we're familiar with Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Uh, therefore, uh, going, make disciples of all nations. And that phrase, they're all nations, you might not be aware Uh, But the background for that language is found in the Abrahamic covenant or the promise that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So whenever you see the, uh, the language of blessing, he told Abraham that your progeny, your heir, your, your, uh, your, uh, future generations that will come from you, that they will be a blessing to all nations. I will make your name great. So you don't have to try to make a name for yourself like the people did at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. I will make your name great. Being great is not something that you obtain, but it is something that is received as a gift. And you will be great because I am great, and you will represent me as my uh, servant in order to live a life on mission uh, for the world. And you will be a blessing to that world. So when we are thinking of ourselves as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, it's not as if all of these uh, ministry partners, uh, missionary partners, are the ones who are out there uh, living their lives on mission. But every single one of us is called to respond to the Great Commission. So we can't uh, uh, say, well, that's evangelism or Global missions, that's not my thing, and so I will not do that. No, this is a responsibility that every follower of Jesus Christ uh, has been called to do. We have been called to live a life on mission. So when you see that phrase, uh, all nations, you see a a development of this phrase even in Scripture. So in Scripture, we say that there is a, a progressive revelation which means that in the canon of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, that you see themes and, and, uh, and works being developed more within uh, Scripture through the different historic eras in redemptive history. We're not saying that there is obviously any revelation outside the canon of Scripture, so please uh, know that whenever you're hearing from God, you're hearing from God because the Word of God Uh, is speaking to you, not because we're hearing from some other voice or some other uh, revelation. There is no other revelation outside of Scripture. But within the canon of Scripture, uh, there is a progressive revelation. So this phrase in Genesis 12 says, all families. It says, you will be a blessing to all families. And so that phrase, all families, gets developed in Genesis 18 and 24 and 27 and, and other places in the Old Testament where not only is it referred to as all families, but then you'll have a similar phrase where it will say all nations, and then another place, all peoples, or to the ends of the earth. So again, whenever you read in the Bible the, the, the reference to blessing or reference to these phrases, like in the Great Commission, uh, that go and make disciples of all nations, know that the Abrahamic covenant is in the background. And why is that significant? It's significant because this shows you that nothing can thwart the plan of God. That God has made a promise and you can be certain that that promise will be fulfilled and that promise will be kept and you will be able to see the manifold uh, a blessing of God's commitment to his people. 
That he selected one particular representative in Abraham, and then he selects all of these representatives uh, who will be ambassadors, ultimately culminating in the fulfillment of that great one of federal-headed representatives, Jesus Christ, who came for the lost. So that as the background, I want us to look at our passage here in Mark chapter 7. Because here we're looking at an insider-outsider issue. These are the themes, the the inside and the outside, because the entire chapter of Mark 7, and Jesus is encountering his opponents, the scribes. These are the experts of the law. These are the the teachers of the law. These are, are the lawyers, in a sense. They knew the Old Testament law well. And then you also have Pharisees. They were religious leaders who were part of a religious renewal movement, and they wanted people to draw closer to God. And, and, but they have become the opponents of Jesus and his ministry. And so in one instance, um, his disciples did not, Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands before they ate a meal. And so what happens? They pointed that out and they said, well, how can your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? Now, it's not as if they were kind of overly neurotic uh, neat freaks uh, who wanted to protect themselves from viruses uh, that are out there. I'm sure there were some uh, neat freaks, but that's not necessarily the point here. Why? Because the word that is used here in, in, uh, to be uh, the used uh, to refer to washing is not the typical term that will be used for washing your hands if your hands are dirty. It is the word that is most oftentimes translated as being baptized. That's the term that is being used. So they're not so concerned about making sure that their hands are sanitized. What they're more concerned about is externally we want to be able to present ourselves in a ritualistic way by ceremonially washing our hands so that everyone would know that we are clean, that we have been set apart, that we are the right people, that we are the sterile people, that we are the insiders in the kingdom of God. And so, so I want us to think of it this way. I want us to think about our first thought will be who's an insider and who's an outsider? Who's in and who's out? Secondly, what does it take to be an insider? And thirdly, how does God respond to that posture of an insider? So first is who's in and who's out? Again, they're having this conversation with Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says that you are so concerned about all of the ceremonial uh, cleanliness on the outside of things, but you need to understand what defiles a man is not what goes into his stomach is what defiles him, but what comes out of the heart. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so, so that's the point that he's trying to make. And what we find here with this ministry to the, to the Syrophoenician woman is an object lesson or a case study of what it means for somebody to reach out to somebody who has been considered ceremonially unclean by the religious leaders. So this is how this second part of chapter 7 is connected to the first part of uh, chapter 7. So this Syrophoenician woman... By the way, if you were a marginalized person in the ancient world um, and uh, they're recording history, you don't have a name. It's it's not saying, oh, uh, 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 Becky, the Syrophoenician woman. It doesn't say, oh, uh, John, the, the poor individual. 
or, 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 or Lisa, um, uh, who is a widow. It, it, it just says the widow, the poor, the blind, the children. And that is why in the Gospel of Mark, when there's a reference to Bartimaeus, the blind man, that was, that was a shocking reality when you heard that. So, well, why does he have a name? Well, because people have names. <laughs> but he is an outsider. He's somebody who's been marginalized. He's, he, he's not an insider. He's not a, he's not a special person like the rest of us who are religious people. So here's a woman, Syrophoenician woman, uh, which would mean uh, the northern part of modern-day Israel, which would be Lebanon, maybe bordering on Syria, a little northeast of, of Israel. She has been, she's a Gentile. She's a, she's a Greek. She's been influenced by Greek culture. So she's not Jewish. She's a Gentile. She's from this northern part outside of Israel where the people of God uh, would live. Not only that, she also had a daughter who possessed an unclean spirit. And because of that, she had this urgency to come to Jesus and ask him to exorcise or cast out the unclean spirit. But you know, what we find is that God is in the, in the business of actively being involved in reaching outsiders. There is this, uh, this uh, principle of primogeniture in the ancient world. That simply meant that the firstborn son would re- receive the lion's share of the inheritance. But oftentimes what God will do, not every single instance, but oftentimes what he will do is he will invert that principle of primogeniture and give the inheritance to the second son. So that will be Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, David over Eliab. And the reason why he does this is to show that the way I view the world oftentimes is ironic, unexpected, paradoxical, inverted, and upside down. It's, we, we tend to look at the world and we say, this is what is right side up. And, and God says, what you consider according to the traditions of the world, the traditions of men, what you consider to be right side up, I am suggesting to you that that is not what I consider uh, to be the values of my kingdom. So that would mean that when we think about a tribe that we're a part of, by the way, we're all part of tribes, whether you want to admit it, I know that we would all like to believe that, oh no, I have this beautiful, beautiful balance, kind of integrated, uh, uh, generous way of looking at every, everyone, but the reality is that we all belong to tribes. Whether you belong to one particular tribe on the ideological axis, or of, of course political axis, uh, socioeconomic axis, or the class axis, at times, which is probably more uh, powerful than even the race axis, educational axis, fashion axis. I think about all the friends that you have. You will consider those who are insiders of people who are able to look like you, who have the same sort of sensibilities on whatever tribe that you're a part of. And so if they do not share those same values, then you will consider them to be outsiders. And so this is exactly what the religious leaders were doing. 
just like what we, do, what we would do as modern people, that we live in a call-out or a cancel culture. So in the past, we would be able to live uh, by agreeing to disagree on certain matters, even really big, important matters, that we were able to be kind and to act civilly and to be able to, to at least respect the other position even though we disagreed with the other position. But we don't live in that kind of culture anymore. We live in a cancel culture. We live in a, if I can't agree with you, if we're not able to be able to agree, then you're part of a different tribe and we're not even going to be able to have civil discourse in the public square. It's just not going to happen. And of course, that doesn't promote critical thinking uh, because you need to be able to disagree. And by the way, what are, you, what are you going to do? You're going to cancel out your wife and your marital relationship because she's saying something uh, and looking at a certain issue differently than you are? What are you going to say? Oh, honey, I'm sorry, but I've got to cancel you. I've got to cancel you out here. There's, there's no way. Be- no, that doesn't happen. That's, that's not how human relationships operate. You know it's a real relationship when somebody contradicts you. That they, they feel safe enough to be able to share things which are honest. But in our, in our culture, what has happened is that, that people are saying, you've got to give me trigger warnings. Don't, don't have microaggression. And, and you have to make sure that, you, uh, that you, I'm in a safe place and, and perceived harm and all of this. And, and we have medicalized our experiences. And it makes it very difficult for us to be able to disagree with one another if we don't have shame, uh, we don't have the same uh, shared values. Now, here's an important principle. Depending on your social location, Christianity or the gospel will either seem radically progressive and subversive, or it will seem horribly reactionary. So depending on the tribe, depending on where you are, Christianity will always seem horribly reactionary or it'll seem progressively uh, liberal. So if you are living or part of a tribe that is very traditional and conservative and perhaps you live in a society that that has a lot of oppression and and, and, and totalizing uh, authority in your government, then Christianity is going to seem extremely revolutionary. It's, 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 it's talking about a, a different alternative kingdom that is in, in, in counter-distinction to, to, to what we're experiencing. So Christianity is going to seem extremely progressive and revolutionary and liberal. However, for many who live in an overly individualistic society... Christianity is is oftentimes going to seem socially regressive, overly traditional, and conservative, and reactionary. How can you have that view on this issue uh, or that issue? So Christianity, depending on the tribe that you're a part of, will always seem a little right to you if you're on the left. It'll seem a little left to you if you're on the right. And this is what the gospel will do. Jesus is a controversialist. He, he comes and he doesn't make anything easy for us. And, and he tells us that you consider certain things because you are framed by the, the tribe that you're a part of. Just like the religious leaders, they said, oh, well, this is what it means to be clean. So they weren't able to look beyond the way they assessed their lived experience. So they saw a woman like this and said, oh, she's an outsider. She's an outsider. And Jesus is saying, that's right. I've come to do ministry 
to these outsiders. I am reversing the priorities of your culture and society. The way you elevate and calibrate your worth and your values, I am not bringing about an alternative, counterintuitive kingdom that aligns with your thinking. So if a woman, like the Syrophoenician woman, who's considered an outsider, who's considered unclean, came to second prayers, would she be welcomed? Is the question that we need to ask. Secondly is, what does it take for an insider uh, in the kingdom of God? What, what, what does it take to be an insider? Well, what we find here with this woman, and let's, let's read in, uh, let's say, verse 27. It says, and he said to her, let the children be fed first. That would be the Jews, the people of God. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And listen to her amazing response. But she answered him, yes, Lord. I don't know if that would have been our first response. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And in a parallel passage in Matthew fifteen twenty-eight, he says, a woman, great is your faith. So what does it take for an insider to be in the kingdom of God? Is for somebody to be bold enough, but to have the sense of desperation, hope, and humility which means that we need to mortify our self-sufficiency and to be able to to know that we are not omnicompetent to provide solutions for all of the world's problems. So I have three grown adult daughters, and uh, I'm grateful when they reach out to me, and sometimes it'll it'll come in in an overly, slightly overly dramatic fashion and be like, oh, Dad, what, what am I supposed to do? And... And so, because um, I'm an even-keeled, emotionally balanced uh, man, uh, I'll respond by saying, okay, if that's the problem, this is how we're going to troubleshoot this. This is, this is the solution. This is what we're going to do. Now, I'm sure my daughters appreciate that, but then, and then later on, they'll come to me and say, hey, Dad, thank you for helping me and providing suggestions and walking me through all of that, but can you, like, emotionally connect with me when you do that? And I'm like, you're asking too much here, okay? <laughs> yeah, you know, be grateful that I'm helping you. Um, but uh, but we, we tend to think, right? Especially those of you who are engineers, right? You're all about problem solving. And, and that's one of the greatest skills uh, that people are looking for in the workforce. People who are able to troubleshoot and, and solve problems. And, and, um, and so rather, because that's our natural impulse, we need to understand that we are not omnicompetent, that we don't have enough skills in, in, in our kind of arsenal to be able to deal with every uh, life issue, especially the deep issue of the human condition. And that is why we need to not simply have Jesus as a good therapist. Oh, Jesus, you know, I'm struggling with some problem emotions. Can you help me? Or, or my husband is struggling with some problem. Can you help him? Or, or, or we, we, we consult Jesus. We're like, hey, Jesus, you know, I've got, I've got this, and, you know, I, I just want to kind of come here and, and outsource uh, this need because I know you're pretty good at helping uh, resolve this. And, 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 and that's what consultants will do, right? A lot of my, our consultants at our church will say, yeah, we essentially come and tell you what you already know and you pay us. But, but 
you know, consultants, we come, you know, they, we tend to think of that way, that somebody's going to come in to be able to provide a, a solution for us. But Jesus is not simply a consultant. He's not just simply a therapist. He's not just simply a pharmacist. He's not just simply somebody who's going to come and help you and aid you. He's going to t- help you to look at and assess the, the, your, the inventory, the spiritual inventory of your life. And this is exactly what this woman was able to do. Now, when I have young uh, couples who come for marriage counseling or to one of our uh, pastors, uh, they will uh, come in, and you can already tell by the body language that, you know, there's something wrong. That's why they're coming in to see you. And, and, uh, and the first thing I say is, you know, there's hope in this marriage. And they're like, really? You haven't even heard our, our case. I'm like, there's hope in this relationship because you're at least coming in together. So when, when your husband and your wife is really having a hard time with you and criticizing you and all of that, that's a sign of hope. You might not know that. It's a sign of hope because if they really didn't care, then they would be completely dismissing you. They wouldn't be talking to you at all. So, so they, they recognize that you have enough value, human dignity created in the image of God, where you have enough value for, for her or for him to disagree with you. But when they don't care at all, then they're going to completely dismiss. And so, so when the couple comes in and they're asking for counseling, um, I have yet to be in a counseling session where one of them would say, let's say the husband says, hey, pastor, the, here's what's going on in our marriage. Uh, the primary problem in this marriage, we've got a lot of problems, but the primary problem in our marriage right now is, is me. I've never heard anyone make that confession. Okay? If only they would make that confession, it would make my life easy as a pastor. And, um, but, but they don't. Many of them might not be practicing law, but oh my goodness, they are expert litigators. They, they, the, the inner defense attorney comes out. I don't know where the skill, skill comes from. They never went to law school. They don't have those skills. But, but boy, they can defend their case. But they're, they're an exceptional prosecutor for the other person. They can prosecute the heck out of the other person's situation. But they'll be great defense attorneys of their cause. And, but this woman, she's not, she's not defending her cause. She's, not, she's essentially saying, yep, I'm an outsider. I'm a Syrophoenician woman. I'm not worthy I'm not, I can't even be considered one of your own children. Then if, if you say that I'm an outsider, I, I am not a domesticated, uh, a nice little pet, but I'm a dirty scavenger pet, and you're considering me a, a diminutive little puppy. That's what the, the this is not just a regular dog, but a little puppy. But then I'm willing to just take the little scraps as a little puppy. I'm willing to do that. She was unwilling to, to try to defend her own rights which we as Americans, if, we, if we're being honest with ourselves, we're good at asserting and protecting our own rights. We're always protecting our own rights, which would mean, again, depending on your tribe and your affiliation, if you're, if you're part of the tribe on the left ideologically, what you will say is, hey, I'm, I'm responding to Micah 6.8. You know, I'm doing justice and loving kindness and mercy and, and, and I think walking humbly with my God. I mean, isn't that adequate? But hey, come on, don't come and tell me what I'm supposed to do with my body. And those, those decisions, those are private matters. You know, I'm, doing, I'm engaged in 
I'm engaged in caring for those who are marginalized, but don't tell me how, what I'm supposed to do with my body, how I'm going to use my body, or t- telling me what sort of uh, a biblical sexual ethic that I'm supposed to have. And no, that, those are my own rights. You can't, you can't come in here and, and speak into those rights. On the other hand, if you are a part of a tribe on the right, you will say, hey, you know what? Issues of piety the priority of the inner life, traditional values, and these things are wonderful. We can clearly see correspondence with Scripture on these issues. Oh, but don't come and tell me what I'm supposed to do with my money. Can't touch that. The government can't touch that. They try, but they can't. And you're not going to try. Those are my own rights. Now, I don't know where you are on that spectrum. But the point I'm trying to make is that we always try to defend our own rights because we as people in the West, I know it's going to be hard for us to admit, but, but we believe that there are things that are owed to us, that, that we, are, we have a certain level of entitlement. And again, generationally, you will differ on this as well. And some of you might agree with me and some of you might disagree with me. But this woman is saying that there is nothing that I deserve. I'm not worthy. I don't have any value or worth. I don't deserve anything. I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I, you know, I deserve a better life. No. She woke up in the morning and saying, you know, I'm doing better than I deserve. I don't deserve a better life. Oh, Jesus, could you please? Yeah, I don't expect to get the, the lion's share of the meal. Look, I'll just take the little scra- scrappy crumbs. I'll just, I'll just take the crumbs. If you consider me a little puppy and I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an insider in that way, hey, that's fine. I'm an outsider. I'm from Syrophoenicia. I'm from a different culture. And this is what was commended by Jesus. Jesus commended this in this woman's life. Then lastly, how does God respond to this posture? Um, look, look at the second part here. There's another man who was deaf and uh, had a speech impediment and couldn't speak intelligibly. And he also begged like the woman. And what does Jesus do? He responds by providing new creational life to him. He takes his hands and he puts spittle on his hands and puts it on the man's mouth and puts it in the ears. Why was he doing this, by the way? Because he was deaf, he needed to kind of use visible signs by which he would be able to understand. This was the the gentleness of Jesus. It also says he took him away from the crowd. Why was that significant? Because for this man's entire life, he was always viewed as a spectacle. Oh, hey, everyone, hey, here he is. Oh, this is the situation. Everyone look at him. And he was always ashamed, always going to places, realizing that he was never fully accepted. Jesus takes him, goes to a quiet place. Even that activity in and of itself was showing dignity to this man, that your life has value. You're created in the image of God. And let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide new creational life. And this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5, where it talked about, oh, those who are blind will see, and those who are deaf will hear, those who are mute will be able to speak, those who are lame or disabled physically, that they might be able to leap forward and to be able to walk. That Jesus is saying that I am going to give life in the midst of death. 
in the, the most unlikely situation. The, the, you look at your life and there's certain moments where you're like, there's no way there can be any hope or any life in this situation. And in that moment, God always reminds you that I am a God of the resurrection. I am a God of life. I'm a God of the new creation. And how, how do I know that this creational uh, nuance is in the background? Because look at the people's verdict or their assessment. Look what it says here in the last verse. They said, he has done all things well. And that's echoing Genesis 1.31. When Jesus creates what he created, and he was impressed with what he had done because God's pretty good at what he does. And he says, no, this is, this is good. And so the whole point here is that God is willing to provide life in the midst of death. But here is the beauty of the gospel. It's inverted. It is upside down. It is ironic. It is not what you think. In order for dead people, in order for hopeless people, in order for godless people to be able to have hope and life, the unthinkable happened that the Son of Man who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to tightly, but he relinquished his rights, not his deity, of course. He was always the second person of the Godhead, but he relinquished his rights. Friends, if there were anyone ever in history who had the right to protect his own rights, it was the person of Jesus. He was the, I'll say this, he was the only entitled person who ever lived. But he gave up his rights. So that a bunch of outsiders might become insiders. And let me see if I can bring this to a close this way. My youngest daughter, who is a first-year student in college, uh, when she was around five or six years old, we were out having dinner with another family, another couple in our church. And uh, she was getting restless, and she was kind of playing around with the chair while we were talking. And uh, you know what's going to happen, right? The the chair was kind of rocking back and forth. And sure enough, she lost her balance, and the chair started to go back this way. And she had her chin right at the back edge of the chair, which had a sharp metal piece. Not very child-friendly, but... um, And then so she fell down this way, and and it hit her right on, on, on her chin. And the laceration was very deep. There's a lot of blood and all of that, and I, I didn't see, but later on I saw that it had gone through the epidermis and the dermis, and you could see the jawbone in there, and it was pretty deep. And so my young, young, youngest daughter is in the acting uh, program in the performing arts at University of Michigan, and so ever since she was young, she always wanted to be uh, dramatic. And, um, and so... So I t- I, we went there and we brought her to Children's Hospital in Boston. And thankfully that there was uh, an attending there. Because sometimes if you have like a resident who's there been working 90 hours that week, you know, they, they can't see things straight. And so, so he was an attending. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So you know what you're going to do, right? And uh, he, said, he said, yeah, yeah, let me take a look at that. And he said, yeah, I'm going to put a couple of stitches in there. And I, I, I wasn't very confident with his response. So I called uh, one of our elders who is a uh, dermatology surgeon, but he is a Mohs dermatology surgeon, and there are only eight of those in, my, in our state. So he, he treats uh, uh, cancer issues and expert in his field. But he wasn't uh, a director or on staff at that particular hospital. He was at another hospital. But I was like, I called him and I said, hey, Dennis, you got to come out right now. Okay, it's an emergency. So he came out. And so I told him, go, go, go talk to him. 
ask him what he's going to do, see if, if you're confident with what, what his uh, uh, procedure is going to be. And, and he asked, he said, so what do you think? He said, oh, I, mean, I think I'll put in a, you know, three stitches in there, right, because you've got to stitch up the, the, the inner layer of the, the skin and then to deal with the other, outer layer afterwards. And he says, um, you know, my recommendation do about 14 or 15. Because if you only do three, eventually what's going to happen is that the, the, it's going to get uh, lumpy. And, and, and there'll be a really visible scar, and there'll be lumps. And so, so I, I would say do 14 or 15. And he said, you know, I'm not confident that I can do that. At that moment, I was almost crazy enough to say, hey, go, go put on the scrubs, and you go in there, and you do it for you, even though this is not your hospital. But uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't say anything then. But what I did say was tell him to call the plastic surgeon who is on call. Now, you don't call plastic surgeons who are on call for a little laceration, right? They come in for like if the, there's a major damage, a car accident, and, you know, and, and so I said, no, no, just, just, just tell him, just insist. So you can see him in the corner, right? He's talking, he's shaking his head and probably rolling his eyes and doing all of this, and he comes back and he says, you know what? He's going to come in right now. And I'm like, yes. So he comes in, takes a look, and he's rolling his eyes, and, and so amazingly, they allowed me to go into the operating room along with my wife and then my uh, ruling elder, who's a surgeon, along with a plastic surgeon. And you know, you know what the physicians do, right? You, you'll never have somebody who's coming out of a doctor, coming out of an autopsy and going into the, the emergency uh, room, right? That doesn't happen. Right? Um, why? Because they need, to, they need to scrub down and they need to be uh, sterilized. That is why they, they walk around like this, right? It's not like they're singing hallelujahs to the living God. But what they're doing is, uh, you know, they, they wash their hands this way. Because the way we wash, we just go like this and all the dirt will kind of flow back to the hands. But you can't. You've got to let the, the dirt flow down into the elbows, right? They do this and they put on their gloves and, 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 and the gown and, and everything. So they went in there, and we were there in scrubs, and we're in the corner. And, uh, and then what they do is, before the surgery, they have to create a sterile field around the area where they're going to do surgery. So right around the face, he was creating a sterile field. I forgot what it was, either blue, uh, blue uh, uh, towels or green towels. And that's, anyways, that's what they use, and they have sterilized instruments, and they're going to do this. And so they're doing this, taking them 15 minutes or so, and my daughter is being very patient there, and I'm getting a little uneasy. And, and I noticed as they were creating the sterile field that the, the blue towel was hitting the lower part of her, her uh, chin, and, and, and they had numbed this, so she probably didn't... Uh, feel it, but, but I just, you know, I just wanted to be a helpful citizen, so, so what I did was, I reached over and pushed the towel aside, and everyone there went, and why? Because I had broken the sterile field, so they need to break it down all over again and start all over, because I was not sterile, I was not sanitized, and that was a sterile field, so I broke the sterile field. And, of course, my wife was in the corner with her arms folded and rolling her eyes. And, um, and so they did that all over again. What did I do? I went across the barrier. I went across. I was unclean, and I went into the clean zone. You know what Jesus did? He did the, he did the ultimate opposite. He was cosmically sterile. He was ultimately set apart and holy. And in order for him to bring sterilization and, and, and to clean us and to purify us and make us sanitized, he needed to go over the sterile field and come in the form of the incarnation and to legally, on our, in our place, as the federal head, as our representative, became dirty and polluted on the cross. 
So the curse that we deserved, he absorbed. And the blessing that he deserved, we received. Galatians chapter 3, also referring back to the Abrahamic covenant. And so this is exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus came for a bunch of outsiders when he was the cosmic insider. He left the throne of God. And he came and became an utter outsider. What is it the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13? He was what? He was sacrificed outside the city gate. So he was somebody who was completely pushed aside. And why did he have to do it that way? Because there was no other way for purification. There was no other way for cleanliness. There was no other way for a bunch of outsiders to have access into the presence of a holy God and to ultimately be an insider. The insider had to become an outsider to allow outsiders to become insiders. And if this is what the Son of Man did for us, then how can we dismiss outsiders? How can we dismiss people who are part of different tribes? How can we say, oh no, there's no hope for that individual? The gospel is telling us that no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God in Jesus. No one is. He saved you. (laughs) He saved me. He can save anyone. And this is the astounding message of grace. And friends, if that is the case, then continue to live out your life on mission. Whenever God brings anyone into your life, show them the kindness that you have received. Mortify your tendency to think that you are more righteous than anyone else. We are all valuable because we've been created in the image of God. But more than that, because of the saving grace that is offered in Jesus, that we are in union with Christ and we have been given the right to become the children of God. Then act like the children of God. Share what the Father has given to us. This is the Father's world. He's given us. He's become the propitiation for our sins. He absorbed the wrath on our place and we are able to be beneficiaries of his amazing grace. And if this is what has happened, it should turn us from the inside out making us the most generous and gracious of all people. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that even though we are undeserving, and even though we were a bunch of outsiders, we were, we were outsiders, like the scribes and the Pharisees. And from their impression, the Syrophoenician woman. But the Syrophoenician woman understood that she didn't deserve anything from you. I pray that we might have that sense of desperation and humility, that we might be able to say, no, we shouldn't assert or protect our rights, but that we should be willing to relinquish our rights in order to be generous and to love other people. Lord, help us to be kind and help us to be gracious. Help us to live out our lives on mission because we are getting a glimpse of what Jesus has done on our, in our place that he became utterly unclean uh, on the cross through his death, that we might be clean and sterilized to be used as sanitized instruments in the hands of a God who is our creator and redeemer and an accurate surgeon with a scalpel in his hand, not to kill, but to heal. In Jesus' name.